From Hudson Institute's Pennsylvania Avenue headquarters in Washington, D.C., this is Policy Talk. I'm your host, Brian Blake. Policy Talk highlights Hudson's work to promote American leadership and global engagement for a secure, free, and prosperous future. In each episode, we examine, in depth, a specific policy issue that affects the United States and our relationship with the world. We hope you'll subscribe to our regular episodes on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. And if you like us, rate us. And now, today's topic. In 1965, at the dawn of the computing age, Gordon Moore, an engineer at Fairchild Semiconductor and later the co-founder of Intel, predicted that computer processing power, at the time defined by the number of transistors on an integrated circuit, would double every one to two years. Moore's law has largely been upheld in the ensuing decades, and the result has been a computing revolution that most Americans recognize today by the incredible power they hold in their smartphone-gripping hands. But silicon-based microchips and the transistors that make them work can only get so small. And with transistors now approaching the atomic scale, Moore's law appears to be no more. But as Moore's law begins to fade, a new computing revolution is just dawning, that of quantum computing. While traditional computers have used binary-based processing, that of zeros and ones forming bits, quantum computers use the principle of quantum mechanics to control subatomic particles and allow them to be both ones, zeros, and a combination of both at the same time, exponentially increasing processing power. While quantum computing technology is still many years away from being fully developed, the ramifications of this leap in computer power is significant, and the cyber and national security ramifications immense. Keeping with the forward-thinking vision of our founder, Herman Kahn, Hudson Institute is the home of the Quantum Alliance Initiative, which seeks to develop policies which guide the creation of a robust quantum ecosystem in which the United States and our allies become global leaders in quantum technology. We are pleased to have as our guest on Policy Talk the man heading that initiative, Pulitzer Prize finalist and New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Arthur Herman. Arthur is the author of nine books, including Freedom's Forge, How American Business Produced Victory in World War II, How the Scots Invented the Modern World, Douglas MacArthur, American Warrior, and most recently, 1917, Lenin, Wilson, and the Birth of the New World Disorder, published last November by Harper. Arthur was educated at the University of Minnesota and Johns Hopkins University. He is a frequent contributor on defense, energy, and technology issues to such outlets as the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, National Review, and Commentary. Arthur, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Um, I wanted to start out by referencing back to a piece you had in American Affairs uh, last month in July, we're recording this in August, um, where you said that quantum computing represents a revolution as profound as any in modern history, and it's one on which we stand at the brink with all its promise and its perils. So uh, I think we're going to get to the, the perils towards the end, but maybe you can give us a brief understanding of what is quantum computing, what's the difference between a quantum computer and the computer we use now, and why is there so much promise? Well. What you got to understand is, and the reason why I wrote that sentence is, is because what you're doing with the quantum computing and with quantum technology is you're really harnessing the physical properties that really embody the universe. I mean, the power of quantum mechanics, quantum physics, for the first time being unleashed in ways that even 10, 15 years ago, most people working in this area, except for a few visionaries like Richard Feynman, 
thought would have been impossible. And now that's actually happening and taking place. And what's happening is, is that research labs and companies, companies like IBM and Intel and Google, have found ways to harness subatomic particles and the peculiar kind of energy, quantum energy that they embody, to use those to initiate and complete computational processes. This is a totally different view of how we, a computer runs from computers that you and I use every day and that we've grown up with since you know the days of ENIAC and of the big mainframe computers going back to right after World War II. It's a totally different physics, a totally different science. And what happens here is, is that the, 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 the classical computer, and they call it that now, the classical yeah. computer, because we realize this is now going to be not exactly obsolete, but it's going to be supplanted by and eventually replaced by a different kind of computer, totally different computer, is, is that our current computers are digital computers. Everything that they, problems they solve, all the information that they process is done through a series of zeros and ones. Binary. Take your basic, it's totally binary. Your basic computer science course teaches that. It's ones and zeros. It's like a coin. Imagine a quarter that I'm holding a quarter, right? And I flip it and I catch it, right? It's either heads or tails. Well, for a digital computer, all information is either heads or tails. It's either a zero or a one and combinations thereof. Now, with a quantum computer, what you're able to do is you're able to harness the fact that these tiny pieces, subatomic pieces of energy can actually be in two states at once. They can be a zero and they can be a zero and one at the same time. So it's like you flip a coin and it's like instead of landing, you've got it constantly spinning. It's both heads and tails all the time. Now, what that enables you to do with a, com with a quantum computer is, is it enables you to reduce the number of operations that are required to process a problem or process an inf information. And so what you're able to do then is, is that you are able to, with just a handful of qubits, you're able to do information in a faster sequence that's exponentially faster than even the, today's fastest supercomputers. So a qubit is... A qubit is just... A, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quantum piece of energy particle. Right, that is being used in order to carry out computer operations. That's a qubit. And qubits, uh, the science that's taking place now in quantum science, uh, information science is learning how to line those qubits up and keep them stable enough and keep them uh, as linked as they call it, entangled enough that you're able to do these incredibly complex operations almost instantaneously. Uh, I mean, just give you a quick comparison, right? That if you think about, for example, a 300-bit a, a uh, classical computer will give you the computing power of your basic calculator. A 300-qubit computer gives you the computing power equal to all of the atoms in the universe. That's how powerful these computers because, are. Because be. it's exponential and they build on each other? That's exactly it. The more okay. qubits you add, the faster and faster it goes. And the faster and faster it's able to carry out what we're, have usually been seen as being almost insoluble kinds of problems. So uh, how do we control these or create these qubits, these subatomic particles? Uh, what's the 
the science of it. Well, I, the science of it is getting these little guys, the little bits of energy and, and uh, subatomic particles to stay stable long enough that you can actually use them to process information. And that means that you have to build these very large and complex uh, laboratories and facilities in which the temperatures are as close to absolute zero Kelvin as possible, because that slows them down. Yes. Or you use various kinds of laser systems in order to keep them stable and keep them in line so you can process information. Or the other process is you just be throw them all together and assume that enough of them, if you throw together thousands of these qubits, that enough of them will come together and entangle, stay linked together long enough that you'll be able to run a program through them and you'll be able to get a, a solution to the problem that you've, that you've posed to them. Here, that's what they call uh, uh, quantum annealers. Yeah. And there's a company, a Canadian company called D-Wave, that have already developed such a computer. And they use it to solve very interesting kinds of problems. Things like that you wouldn't think would be really, would stump a classical computer, but which do, which is what's the fastest link from uh, passage between two points, like from my hotel to the airport. What's the quickest way in which to do that? And uh, with, with the, the traffic patterns in Beijing, D-Wave has developed a system by which you can use a quantum computer to figure those things out. So and it's better than Google Maps and Waze? Instantly faster. And then when you think about it in terms of the other problems that it could be solved for approaching things, for example, climate change, being able to do the enormous uh, almost infinitesimal calculations that are involved in following weather patterns over uh, and computer models over decades or even hundreds of years of ways in which you can uh, devise new sorts of medicines, the ways in which you can carry out all kinds of research of the most complex problems, the quantum computer can solve it and, and, and be able to do it for you. And it's happening. It's not just science fiction. Right. Uh, these companies are already developed. They've already found ways to stabilize up to 20 to 28 qubits. Um, Intel has said that they've gotten up to 50 plus qubits. And when you're at that point, you're close to what they call quantum supremacy, which doesn't mean that quantum computers rule the world. It just means that you've got a quantum computer now that can, in fact, solve problems that a classical computer would either be stumped at or it just take so long it, you wouldn't even bother to run the program. So how, how big how big are these? Are they facilities? Is this going well, back to the... I'm going to see one. There's one over at University of Maryland, as a matter of fact. There's a, just uh, up the pike. Um, you have uh, the uh, University of Maryland, a company, startup company there called IonQ. Uh, I went to go see it there, and it's probably a quantum computer is in a room maybe about twice the size of this. And basically fill that wall, all the various parts, including the software. So for, the, the for those that can't see, this is not a huge it's room. Not a this big is room, like no. a 10 by 15 size room. Exactly. So. Now, some of the other ones are much larger facilities. Uh, the one, for example, the Institute of Quantum Computing, that's a very large room. And it's a, it's a structure that is, uh, I would say, probably about 20, 30 feet high. Because of all of the equipment you need in order to keep those little qubits happy, keep them in line so that they'll stay long enough to answer you some questions. So these are not, you're not going to have a, you're not going to end up with a quantum laptop. Yeah. What's, so, what's going to happen is you're going to have access to this through the cloud to companies that have these large standing, what they call universal quantum computers. That's how you're going to be able to access the kinds of unique properties that a quantum computer can bring to, bring to your business, 
bring to government, uh, bring to whatever it is that that they're able to solve that no one else is. So able miniaturization to solve. isn't even on the table right now. This is it's just getting getting these. Yeah, long, long way. So so where are we? You mentioned fifty cubits is is kind of the that's the claim right are. now. That's the claim right now. Uh, just where, where did we start? Ten, were we anywhere ten years ago? Well, uh, wh- yeah, what's well, the history here? The history is moving so quickly that it's almost week to week and month to month. Uh, and it's highly competitive. I mean, you know, Intel, Google, Microsoft, these are competitors in a number of spheres, and now they've become very keen uh, competitors in, in the quantum computing field. There's other companies, though, startups like Rigetti Computing, for mm-hmm. example. Also American. Also American, uh, founded by a, by a naturalized American-Canadian, Chad Rigetti. And they've got their own model for how to do a quantum computer. Likewise, INQ up at uh, University of Maryland, and the chief scientist there, Chris Monroe, is on our advisory board for the Quantum Alliance Initiative here at here at Hudson. Right. Uh, so it's not a monolithic process. There isn't one path to achieve a quantum computer, and that's what makes it both exciting, but it also means you're going to have a wide number of competitors, a wide number of players in this sphere, not just in the United States and not just in the in, in information technology sector, but also internationally. So you said there, there's three types of quantum computers currently out there, right? There's the quantum annealer. Um, there's a, uh, a um, what was the other, an analog emulator. That's right. And then it, what, what, which what, is basically are we... a classical computer that acts, that can be, act like a quantum computer and do calculations similar to. To, in the same. And those really are really more as a kind of prototype, a use as a prototype for figuring out how you're going to run a quantum computer once you really get which is it's in line. So the the holy grail here, the thing everyone's looking for is is the um, universal quantum computer. Is That's that what we call what they it? Want. And okay. I would say probably you'd be in the neighborhood of a hundred qubits that are going to stay stable enough that you'll be able to give them some very complex problems and they'll be able to solve it, as I say, in, 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 in nanoseconds. So you mentioned a couple of areas. We're going to get to the national security implications of this because sure. there are clearly some, especially on the cyber side, on uh, making sure we keep data that needs to stay private, private, and secured, secured. Right. Um, but uh, what, what are some of the other applications of quantum computers? You mentioned medicine. Is it primarily the ability to just uh, to look at data sets and find patterns in a way that you couldn't do before? Is it is it um, applications to research? How can this help, for example, pharmaceutical companies develop cures? Well, anything that involves subatomic particles and manipulating subatomic particles, you'll be able to figure out how to do that on a big scale, mega scale, through the use of a quantum computer. So, for example, from the point of view, let's say, nanotechnology, of being able to figure out how you align not just the not just the molecules, but the submolecular structure for a new kind of drug, let's say, or for a new kind of cure of cancer. Okay, uh, that's another area too. For example, subatomic particles, for from the point of view of understanding the behavior of cancer cells. All of these kinds of things will now be able to be approached and understood using quantum technology. And I use that in a broad sense because it's not just quantum computing. It's also quantum sensing. And this is another one of the big areas which has now grown up, which also has, by the way, national security implications. And that is you'll be able to use subatomic particles to perceive objects and to uh, 
understand the movement of objects based on minute shifts of gravitational force. And this will enable you to, in effect, look through walls. Basically, Superman's X-ray wow. vision is yours going through, whether it's through steel walls to perceive objects on the other side, or also to being able to see to the bottom of the ocean as if you were looking at the bottom of a clear mountain stream. So, so the reason we call this a quantum revolution is truly, it's revolutionary. It's because I mean, physics is so revolutionary in terms of its applications. We've known about quantum physics for over a century. But the idea of it now that you can harness that physics and do amazing kinds of things and, and scary things with yeah. it, that's where we're really headed. As I say, it's not science fiction. We're all working at it, both the U.S. and also other countries. So one other area that, I mean, some people have Elon Musk jumping to mind, have fears about artificial intelligence. Does quantum technology affect that? Are they, do they well, go in tandem or are to, they separate? It's going to do it in, in two ways. Uh, I would say one is that once, if you harness the power of artificial intelligence and machine learning, you can rapidly speed up the development of quantum computers because a lot of these are really complex engineering problems. How do I get these qubits that basically can be in two places at once? Yeah. That's, that's mind-boggling enough. Yeah, right. But that also if you look at them, in other words, if you try to measure where they are, they disappear. That's part of the nature of quantum mechanics. One of the paradoxes yeah. is you can you can you can see where it is, but not when it's going to be there. And likewise, you can say this is going when it's going to be there, but not where. You can tell why this would be so hard to entangle these things oh, together. It's, it's very very difficult. Something and, you can't even see. And they can entangle. You know, they don't have to be in, in close proximity. They can a, a qubit can entangle with a qubit at the other side of the universe. That's the nature of quantum mechanics okay. wow. at work. So getting finding ways in which to get. To, to get these all together, or enough of them, sufficient number of them, to get a computer. It's a huge engineering problem. And through the use of artificial intelligence, a lot of those complex problems can probably be solved a lot faster, and answers can come. But it's also the other side, Brian, and that is, is that, and here we come to the question of what, of the other aspect of quantum information technology, of quantum, using quantum physics to protect data, quantum cybersecurity, as yes. we call it, that when you think about the massive amounts of data that artificial intelligence requires in order to function, huge amounts of data, that if that data is corrupted, if that data has been stolen, if someone else has access to it, then the functions by which artificial intelligence is able to deliver the benefits, results that you want are gonna be compromised. And so quantum computers and quantum technology can also be a powerful way in which we enhance and build upon the benefits that flow from, from artificial intelligence as we go ahead in the next decade. Right. So let's talk about the cyber component let's of this. By all means because, talk about that. you know, we here at Hudson, are, as you know well, are, are concerned with national security and in technology and, and the intersection, which is, which is this. why this is the perfect project. So. That's why I got involved with exactly. this. Exactly. Because. Uh, for the very first time when I heard someone talking about quantum computing, in fact, it was one of our former uh, distinguished fellows, uh, Mike Rogers, former chairman of the House Intel Committee, when he was telling me about quantum computers and the fact that that powerful, uh, almost magical uh, calculating uh, capacity, capability that these machines have can be used to break down or factorize 
the huge subprime numbers on which all of our public encryption systems are based because they are theoretically unbreakable. Right. That these machines will be able to do it in so, a flash of a second. And so I don't know. You yeah. know the, do you know the movie Sneakers? Remember the movie oh, yeah. Sneakers? Oh, yeah. That was a great movie. And it's about this, this, this Russian scientist who has a device by which he's able to decrypt yeah. any encryption system whatsoever. Yes. And the motto for it was too many secrets, right? Yeah. Right? Well, that's where we are. What we're what what the what a what a universal quantum computer can do is what is the nightmare scenario that's spelled out in that movie Sneakers. And that is that virtually every public encryption system, from bank records to government agencies to even how even how we protect a, a great deal of our classified data and and our power grid and our infrastructure all of these all of these encryption systems will now become instantly transparent uh, instantly available for uh, for for someone to 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 hack in and skip. so for our you you said a little bit at the beginning of this discussion but um for the, our listeners that maybe don't understand we hear the word encryption all the time but it's right. just hey it's a black box somehow my things are safe Citibank tells me my my account's going to be okay. I, yeah, I trust them. Yeah, Citibank is able to do that right. because what happens is is you've got a system by which uh, Citibank has a key, an encryption key, and you get access to that through your key, which is basically your bank card when you stick it into the machine. What and are that's these what keys though? Your data. These keys are the keys are these huge numbers, math these problems, massive, really massive numbers, and uh, they're called subprime numbers, uh, which you have to be able to break down into smaller units called factorizing uh, in order to in order to crack the code. That's basically what it is. It's so all, all, all the kids we knew that were good at math went into encryption. This is where the, the biggest math problem. Now you actually touch on but, something which is really important. Yes. Brian. It's an excellent point. And that is, is the people who work in encryption and cryptolo- cryptology generally have mathematics backgrounds. Right. That's their lookout. The people who work in quantum computing backgrounds is in physics yeah and these are two communities that don't talk to each other very much and one of the things we're trying to do in the quantum alliance initiative is to create more of an alliance between the people working in quantum computing all the amazing things that they're doing yeah and the people who are working in cryptography and in the area of how we protect our data and information from cyber hacking and cyber attack whether it's today or it's tomorrow by one of these one of these uh uh amazing quantum computers to bring the two of them together so they can figure out a way in which the quantum computing and quantum cybersecurity can go hand to hand to protect not just our leadership in terms of uh, information technology, which is really at stake now in the area of quantum computing, but also how we can protect our data and our, our, our most important national secrets from someone else, someone else's so, so these our national secrets are you know our financial institutions, our infrastructure, critical infrastructure is protected by um, uh, cyber protections. Called, that's that, right. They're called asymmetric asymmetric, asymmetric cri- yes. And, and so they're protected by that. The threat of of quantum is it can come in and and what the computers we have now cannot do, which is break these these gigantic equations down and figure out like how to break this. Quantum can do that in a blink of an eye. Once and you it's, won't know it. I mean, it's, theoretically, it's it hasn't happened yet, but theoretically, that's theoretically what's, that's what would happen. Now, the, why wouldn't you know it? The reason is because it's not hacking into the system. What it's doing is basically now it controls and 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 manipulates 
the original encryption key okay. to your bank or whoever it is that so you don't even realize what's going on. No, you look like the the hacker looks like just another customer. Or I should put it even even I'll put it even more succinctly. It looks like the bank. Okay. And the, even the bank won't know that it's the bank and that the data is being stolen, that the data and information is being compromised, uh, that all of the systems in which a bank or a financial institution or business or government agency relies on not just not just to protect that information, but to authenticate users of that information, all of that will now be totally transparent, totally available to to your quantum hacker. And and they could then hold on to that and you wouldn't know and five years later no launch idea. an attack or that, well that's the other thing too, is, is that even if it's data that they can't hack now, what's happening is is that countries like Russia and China who both understand the real implications of this quantum revolution from a strategic standpoint and from a national security standpoint, is that they are busy storing up data that they can't hack yet. But okay. once they get the quantum computer, so encrypted data, they can plunge back in and and uh, and and have a go at it. Okay. And so this is a threat which is not just in the future. And now estimates are that maybe we would face the threat of a of a Chinese quantum computer, what, maybe in 2026, 2030. There are many, many uh, theories about and schools of thought about how soon or how far away that moment is. But the point is, is that the data is already being collected which can then be cracked into once later they when, reach when that. they have the means by which to it's, do it. It's interesting. It's very similar. I worked in the anti-doping field for the World Anti-Doping Agency when I when I was in the U.S. government. And they had a little bit similar of a strategy where they told all the athletes, look, we may not be able to catch you now if you're using some in undetectable performance-enhancing drug, but we're going to hang on to these um, urine samples for years, and then later on we can find out 10 years from now. Ten and they've, years and they've, now started, they've started doing that, and that's why you've seen a lot of Folks lose their uh, uh, Marion Jones being one of them lose retrospectively. their retrospectively, but yeah, that's this, th that that's in the in the purpose of, of something admirable. This, on the other hand, would be a, a grave national security. Threat. Oh, we take another example, and that's the Venona decrypts, which I worked on when I was working on my biography of Joseph McCarthy. Now, the Venona decrypts, which was the cracking the Soviet diplomatic code, uh, which they were able to use, which the U U.S. was able to do in order to follow the links with Soviet espionage, all the documents that they were looking at and decrypting were all like 20 years old. Yeah. It wasn't current stuff. Right. But that's all that you needed in no. order to follow the pattern and to follow- Well, especially uh, human assets. Who was, that's right, the human assets above all else, but also to learn who your t the targets are, where they're looking, right. uh, and what the connections are with this. So this is a big problem, the issue of the st data storage for future, future hacking. Years. Sure. And uh, and bo anyone who understands quantum technology knows that once you've got that quantum computer, you're pretty confident you'll be able to be able to read that data. So so let's talk about our you know geopolitical adversaries, shall we say? I don't know if you use the word enemies anymore. Um, China, Russia, where are they on quantum, and where's the U.S.? And I assume that those are your three leading countries. Are they? And who are the others? Pretty much. I mean, there's others who are entered into the into the race, and there's others who, in fact in many ways, allies of ours who could be extremely helpful. But let me back up for one quick second sure. so we don't leave listeners with this total doomsday scenario. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God, what's going to happen here? Fortunately, fortunately for, for us and fortunately for the world, the, the 
what is the problem, namely quantum technology is also a solution. Because you can, just as you can use a computer built around the quantum physics and subatomic particles to break into and to hijack encrypted data, you can also use the same principles to protect it. Right. And this is one of the things which is, I think, one of the most exciting aspects of the field and the one in which the United States, I think, ha can really look to help and support from some of our key allies, like the British, like the Canadians, like the Australians, because they're very much interested in this area of what we call quantum cybersecurity. Yeah. And there are powerful ways in which you can take steps, even starting now, it's ways in which you can take steps to help to protect data through what are called quantum resistance algorithms. Okay. Now, these are this is classical computing algorithms, classical software, but it's way, way, ones that are dense enough and complex enough that they are resistant to quantum penetration. Maybe not forever, yeah. but certainly a lot better than any encryption system you've got now or any kind of firewall or cybersecurity system that's installed now. The great advantage to quantum-resistant algorithms is they won't just resist, resist hacking in the future by a quantum computer. They'll resist hacking by classical hackers right now. Okay. Um, then you have what they call a quantum key distribution, which is being able to share random number generated uh, uh, keys that go back and forth between users and parties on a network so that you are have a system which is basically unhackable because it, everything depends upon random numbers that are generated from between from the two parties physics. from okay. using quantum physics to yeah. achieve that. And that leads to quantum communication networks, which are likely to become unhackable. It leads to a quantum internet. That's going to be coming. That's going to be coming in the next couple of decades as well, in which you'll be able to have safe uh, information that's transmitted without fear of hacking or penetration, even by law enforcement agencies. Now, that's a problem. I just yeah. raised one yeah, that, sure. that people like the FBI, for example, or CIA aren't terribly happy about. But those are policy issues. Those are issues to be sorted out. The technology is going there. And we need to think about not just where the technology is going, but also how do we take steps now so that we're able to protect ourselves and defend ourselves from those who uh, mean us ill will in this area. And so the two countries you mentioned, China and Russia, but particularly China, are the ones who I think we have to really worry about. Okay. So, so you're saying there's kind of two tracks here. There's the cyber computing, but there's also kind of a cybersecurity. That's right. And, and this same technology is going to protect us from the threat. But used in totally different ways, and that's yeah. what's so interesting about this. Used in totally different ways. So, And this is why the point I was getting to is that you've got two communities who are working uh, on parallel tracks, and what we're trying to do is to bring them together so they both understand how important what one is to being able to promote and encourage the growth of the other. Because if we have quantum computers, but we don't have ways that, that are able to do these amazing things or even read other people's encrypted systems, but we don't have sufficient protection of our own encryption, our own encryption systems, our own uh, vital national security data, then we've kind of lost the we've kind of lost the race. So, so reading your work on this, uh, yeah, you can tell me if I'm wrong, and then I want you to expound on it. The U.S. is is basically U.S. and some of our allies, Australia, U.K., Canada, are the world leaders in the quantum computing side. But on the mostly cyber, mostly U.S., mostly, mostly US. U.S. And on the cyber 
aspect of this? The Chinese are maybe more ahead than we are? Well, the Chinese have thought about this more deeply, I think, than we have, frankly. Um, and what they're working on is both sides okay. of the fence. And they're spending huge amounts of money. They have a $10 billion quantum computing facility that they're, that they're building, uh, which, which they make no bones that they see the quantum computing technologies that come out of this and quantum sensing technologies as a means by which they can achieve military superiority. They see this as a way, they see the military uses of this. And at the same time, they've also been taking a big lead uh, in, in many ways in the quantum communication area, which is basically protecting data. Because okay. what they're doing is they have a very clever strategy, and that is that they are in the process of both hardening their vulnerable cyber sites at the same time they're building, that's the defensive side, the same time they're building the offensive side, namely a quantum computer, to go after our stuff. And right now, we haven't really put that together. There's a... What, we the U.S.? Yeah, we haven't yeah. really brought the two strategies together in a, in a timely way, I think. Right now, there's a House bill uh, to encourage uh, investment in quantum computing, quantum technology. Um, the White House has uh, announced a strategy to help encourage this uh, run out of the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Um, but the issue of quantum cybersecurity has by and large been left to places like the National Security Agency, to Department of Defense. There's a feeling like, well, that's national security stuff. We'll leave it to them. Uh, but it's not. It's really something which goes beyond just protecting the Pentagon secrets and uh, our intelligence community's secrets. It's about everybody's secrets. Okay. Now, the the Chinese, as you said, they've, they've got this $10 billion facility they're, they're building. We, on the other hand, we have an incredible private sector, you know, Silicon Valley and, and beyond uh, working on this as well. Are, are those comparable? Does the U.S. government need to match dollar for dollar? I don't think it has to Or be, does our I don't think private sector help us out? I don't think it needs that. I think what's the, the, the key, and this is one of the things that we're stressing with our quantum alliance uh, initiative, is, is that the U.S. government needs to, needs to look in two directions. One is it has a, could have a very powerful role in encouraging those companies to think about what the national security implications of what they're doing is. Because companies like Intel and Microsoft, when they're pursuing quantum computers, racing to build that first quantum computer that can do all these amazing things, they're thinking about it in commercial terms. Right. They're thinking about how do we build our commercial base to give people access to quantum computers through the cloud that we can charge services for. Perfectly understandable. But the national security implications of that quantum computer, both for offensive purposes but also for defensive purposes, that needs to be something that, that where a national quantum strategy could really come in, be essential. And the other area is the quantum cybersecurity. And there, instead of saying, well, we'll leave it to the experts, let's, I think what's important is let's look to where we can see those who are already moving in that direction and have spent funds and have developed uh, rather sophisticated approaches to questions of quantum security. And as it happens, those are countries like Australia. They are uh, Canada. We're hosting a conference here in October on Quantum Canada about the, how they've developed a national quantum strategy that includes quantum cryptography and cybersecurity as well as quantum computing. 
It includes uh, Great Britain, and it even includes a New Zealand also. They well, do a lot of these work are the Five Eyes countries, correct? These, and these ha just happen to be the Five Eyes. Okay. And so part of our Quantum Alliance initiative, Brian, that we're doing is how do we think about the Five Eyes Alliance network for information sharing as a way in which we can also think about sharing information and developing a common strategy to protect our resources, our data and networks, but also promote quantum computing as something which works to the benefit of the free world, of, of freedom, of prosperity, and not just as a tool for an authoritarian state to extend its dominance, which is what I fear is happening with, with, with China. Yeah, right. And just for our listeners, the, the Five Eyes are the out, it comes out of World War II with comes the out of, Brit I, UK, US, and then these yeah, three sure, other allies. It, was a, it, it began as a uh, agreement on sharing intelligence during World War II between the United States and, uh, and Great Britain. But then after the war, it extended to uh, the key dominions, Canada, yeah. New Zealand, Australia uh, as well. So they, they referred to as the five eyes, the five in signatories to the intelligence agreement. Um, and they share a lot more than just simply signal intelligence today. Uh, and it's been one of the, it's been the envy of the world, the degree to which the bond of trust and information sharing and of kind of working together to deal with problems, whether it was during the Cold War or the War on Terror. And what I'm trying to suggest, what we're trying to do here at Hudson, is to encourage policymakers and legislators to think about the Five Eyes Network now as a way in which we can also win the quantum. Right. Well, especially since those are the countries and that they have just strength. happen to be. They That's just great. happen to be key, key, key players in the in quantum technology as well. So, how how do you think policymakers are doing right now? You, I'm sure you've talked to folks on the Hill. You mentioned there a bill is, up and there. We've been, we've been involved in the in the crafting of a bill in the House uh, for spending about 1.25 billion dollars over the next 10 years on expanded funding in quantum quantum technology. Uh, I think we're off to a good start. And I think also legislators and the White House are coming to understand that winning the quantum race, as I call it in my American Affairs article, is something which is important, not just for terms of American economic competitiveness, because who controls this kind of revolutionary and transformational technology in all of its aspects is going to have a huge advantage, not just in information technology, but in every aspect of, of life and of economy in which data and information is shared and used. I mean, that's just about everything today. But it also has huge internet, huge national security and international security implications as well. Because if the United States is vulnerable to quantum attack, then our allies are too. And the data that we and they have all shared together and the relationships that we've built over time are also under threat. From that, from that kind, is of, that this, kind of challenge. Not to go back to the doom and gloom, but sure. I know that some of our listeners are thinking like I am. If if China achieves quantum supremacy before we do, um, does it? Is there a you know worst case scenario where they say we can shut down all of your water plants and and turn off all of your you know nuclear submarines uh, now? So submit. I mean, what's the what's the Scary ramp. I mean, I grew up, I, as I've mentioned on this podcast before, grew up in the Cold War. Yeah, yeah. Was always afraid of nuclear annihilation. Is this another thing on that level, uh, a threat that we need to have supremacy Do in? Do we face a quantum Pearl Harbor? Yes. I think it's a possibility. I think, though, the Chinese strategy is more long-term than that. 
And what they see this is as they see quantum as one more piece in their development of a high-tech supremacy that will make them ultimately the lone superpower. And that means not knocking out the United States. It simply means displacing the United States as the world leader right. uh, in information technology, in technologies of all kinds, and is the place to which all other countries now around the world are going to look for leadership, for standards and practices in areas, whether it's talk, we're talking about quantum, whether we're talking about artificial intelligence, or 5G, 5G yeah. where the Chinese are very, very active involved in that and trying to promote themselves as setting the new standard in, for the, in that area in terms of fiber optic networks. Um, all these are of a piece. I think that the real challenge is for the United States is, is that to lose leadership in information technology from an economic standpoint is really an existential threat. This, That's this, what our, our economic leadership since World War II has been built on, the foundations that were laid in terms of information technology from Silicon Valley all the way through to the, all the way going to the future. And if we lose that leadership, we lose a lot more than simply slipping to second place. We lose our ability to maintain a growing, thriving economy in, a, in, in any terms, by any standpoint, let alone the other threat, sure. the, the one that a quantum Pearl Harbor would pose, which is not the bringing down systems. That's more of your classical hacker approach. Sure. But basically being able to suck out any kind of valuable data or information to manipulate and control financial markets, manipulate and control power grid, uh, to do any number of, of things that involve considerable mischief in terms of where our, our, our military, of where our financial institutions, uh, of where our power grid functions and where, and where it's going to go. So That's where the Chinese would see, would see that offensive capability coming into their hands. That's well said. So that, maybe it's, instead of the Manhattan Project, this is more of the space race. Uh, I think it, uh, it's it better bears, it bears analog, some, right? And I think like the space race, the space race, you know, what triggered American response and awareness was Sputnik. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you're old enough to remember the Sputnik. I'm not. A, a moment. But yeah. I lived in the immediate aftermath when school curricula changed, when suddenly there was a whole sea change, and suddenly science and technology became, and mathematics became hugely important. We call the STEM yeah. subjects. And I think what... We want to have what, I, what one of the fears and one of the things that we're looking at with the Quantum Alliance Initiative is the degree to which America's leadership in this area and ability to compete is going to depend upon how strong we are in the STEM areas, both in terms of workforce, but also in terms of basic research and development. Everyone I talk to who works in this field has said to me one of the worries that they've got in terms of our long-term competitiveness is, I just can't get enough engineers right. or workers who understand quantum physics, who think quantum. And this is a situation in which more and more of the areas which we do depend for our high tech and information technology areas, uh, the numbers of Americans are dwindling and the numbers of foreign students, including Chinese students, are growing. And this is going to be a problem as we go forward where areas like electrical engineering, for example, computer science, Right now, computer science programs around the country, something like 60 to 70 percent of the students are foreign nationals. Yeah. Now, the answer is not to kick out the foreign nationals. It's too, this is not an appeal to No, 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 not it's at like, all. It's like, let's get more the Americans opposite. involved. Right. And if I would say, 
if we were to look for what the, the next chapter in terms of promoting STEM education and promoting uh, STEM awareness has got to be in the quantum area. And that, Brian, is the other aspect of this that the Quantum Alliance Initiative is going to be pushing and we want to, we want to get started with. It is an alliance of colleges and universities and schools, of government agencies and laboratories and the private sector to sort of say, America needs a new rebirth of an interest in science and engineering and STEM subject because our future is really going to depend upon having the next generation be able to be able to work in and do even basic research in these kinds of areas. The Chinese that can command their populations to study these subjects and place them where the government decides. We right. don't have. No, no, we don't have that. We don't have that. Thankfully, but thankfully we don't. But it does give them a, a bit and, of and that bit gives of that gives us enormous advantages from yeah. the point of view of innovation and entrepreneurship. Yes. But that's going to be, if we face any kind of crisis, it's not just going to be the quantum technology crisis. It's going to be a high-tech STEM crisis that I think is, is one, of the, one of the problems we're going to need to address and soon. We I couldn't agree more. I was working uh, in General Electric GE yeah. just a little under a decade ago, and, and we worked with President Obama on this a lot because GE was looking for engineers, and they're just aren't there. Where are they? And it's, I don't know if much has improved in the last, and there's been a lot more focus, and you've heard it, thankfully, from both sides of the political aisle. There's an understanding that to be competitive in the world, we need to increase our uh, STEM capabilities, you know, at the most basic levels. But I think a lot of kids growing up here, quantum mechanics, oh, that sounds scary. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd scary. Rather, rather do an easier and major than that. Not, it's actually not that complicated. Right, and right. The point is, is that the quantum makes you leap ahead. I mean, we're not just keeping up when we're dealing in the quantum sector. We're leaping ahead to the next, uh, leapfrogging ahead to the next level, the next technological revolution. Right. And that's why I think there's got to be, there's got to be more focus and uh, and a real sort of call to arms on this, so we don't face that Sputnik moment. Yeah. Let alone that Pearl Harbor. Yeah. No. Moment. Exactly. Um, just to conclude, you've you've made you've talked about a lot of your recommendations as we've gone here, but I know that. Um, you have a quantum plan that that you put out there. Do you want to talk about some of the things you would recommend to policymakers, um, well, just Americans think, in general, on what I we should be so. doing? I think the the idea of a of a comprehensive quantum uh, strategy that encompasses both quantum tech computing, which, as I say, there's now some work that's really getting underway now, thanks to the House bill and to the White House, but also the quantum cybersecurity area in, uh, that includes more cooperation with our allies, not just in terms of sharing information and technology and, and a common strategy across the five eyes and beyond, but also deciding is what we're not going to share. Yeah. Because one of the big challenges in this area has been, since this has been largely a scientific enterprise up until very recently, is a feeling that, hey, as long as you're you know working in quantum physics, we want you as part of our project, whether you're, educa whether you're educated at UCLA or Berkeley, or whether you went to University of Moscow, or to uh, University of Beijing. And so you have this kind of community of scientists from all nationalities working together on the scientific side, which is great, that's sure. fine, but we're now approaching the point where that kind of information sharing and that kind of training, for example, Chinese scientists at, 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 at uh, Caltech, Russian scientists at MIT, where we have to sort of take a step back and think, what, what's really happening here? And are we, in, in many ways, uh, perhaps giving people the key to the lock on the crown jewels for our economic and, and, and high-tech future? 
that's one of the things, too, that a strategy, I think, is going to have to address. Well, there's a lot to think about, and this is, I I assume to many listeners, this is a really eye-opening discussion um, about what's ahead of us in the future, um, how we keep our nation secure, our institutions secure, but also the great uh, promise that this technology has, and how I do we balance so, that? And I think that's it. I mean, it's not it's it's not a doomsday scenario. Uh, it's one in which there is, as you were saying, lots of opportunity as well as as risk and peril. But yet, too, Brian, I have to say, I think this is such a great Hudson type of project. Absolutely, because it's about the future of technology and how technology has shaped society and how government policy can shape technology towards that brighter future. And I, I flatter myself that, it, that, 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 that Herman Kahn, if he were involved today at Hudson, would be hammer and tongs into this quantum technology area. And I think this is, in many ways, extending that Hudson legacy into the technology revolution of the future. Great. Well said. Well, thanks for joining us, Arthur. We appreciate having you today. It's been a great pleasure, Brian. Anytime. And I want to thank all of our listeners for downloading our podcast today. Please subscribe and tell your friends about us. And if you like the work we're doing, please consider supporting Hudson Institute. If you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to contact us at policytalk at hudson.org. That's policytalk at hudson.org. From all of us here at Hudson Institute, we appreciate you joining us. I'm Brian Blake. Thank you for listening.